Ladies and gentlemen, we are currently holding for further traffic clearance. They keep on top of accommodations, record and update reservations, coordinate telephone operations, and help plan energy conservation. <laughs> Folks hereabouts say Br'er Rabbit's leaving home. I say he's heading for trouble. <laughs> This is the Dream Finder, your unemployed host of the old journey into imagination. If you have any work, please get back to me. But in the meantime, you're listening to WDW Radio. WDW Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 665, and together we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook every Wednesday night, community, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and find everything else at www.radio.com. So former Walt Disney Imagineering creative Tom K. Morris joins me again this week to share stories about the design, development, and creation of the original Journey into Imagination, including what and who was almost included in the attraction and pavilion. I'll then have our Disney trivia question of the week and more updates at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. When we last left Tom Morris back on show 661, he had just finished sharing his origin story and tales of Disneyland working at Imagineering, which I guess was still wet back in 1979, Epcot's World of Motion, Tony Baxter, Splash Mountain, and its upcoming retheming, and much more. But we ran out of time, especially because I wanted to give this next project he worked on, it's very much due. So I want to first welcome back Tom K. Morris to the show. Thank you, Lou. It's great to be back. It is great to have you back. And, and it's funny when we were just sort of finishing up last time, just because of time, you started to mention the three words that I couldn't wait to get to, which was, of course, journey into imagination. And I said, no, 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 we can't, we can't go down this. I know you have limited time. I want to sort of make sure we give this project and, and probably the many questions that I'm going to have its due. So let's, you know, go into the Wayback Machine back to, I guess, probably summer of 1979 when Kodak, who was the official camera company, film company of Walt Disney World, comes in with this idea to create, I guess, really more than just a, a single attraction, but an overall pavilion. Talk to me about your assignment into Journey into Imagination, how it came to be, and what your initial role was. Sure. Well, um, first of all, I, I'm unsure ex of the precise timeline. I don't. It may have started before summer 79, and I'll know the answer to that question as soon as I uh, get to a layer of my collection that I've been going through <laughs> that's got those memos. Um, but I also recently discovered that it was something I think that um, they were talking about 
a year earlier, it, it, the term images and imagination um, popped up. That, in fact, that was the initial name of the pavilion when I started. And then I, I found some information that had it placed on a master plan back in 1978. Um, so it, it seems like they may have had some initial talks with Kodak, Kodak and maybe they got busy and, you know, um, and the discussion with them was put on hold and then returned um, sometime in the, I think, the late spring, early summer of 79. And I think just one day, Tony uh, Baxter came up to me and said, hey, uh, I've been assigned to this new project. He was in the middle, by the way, of working on Big Thunder, completing Big Thunder at Disneyland. And he had been there. Um, you know, I hadn't seen him for the first several months when I started at WED, because he was down at Disneyland almost every day, uh, finishing out Big Thunder, doing field um, art direction. So one day, uh, suddenly there's Tony. Hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> You're supposed to be at Disneyland. And he said, well, I've just been assigned uh, to this new project for Epcot that they actually want to get done by opening day called Images and Imagination. And I'd like you to be a part of it to help um, lay out the ride, lay, lay out the pavilion, whatever it's going to be, because there's no architect, by the way, available. So you're going to kind of do some of the preliminary um, layout work for that and um, participate in the in all of the idea and story sessions. So that started right away. And as I recall, the other team members, um, boy, I should have written this down, but I know um, Steve Kirk at some point, but immediately I think it was Barry Braverman, Rick Harper, who directed the um, uh, Impressions to France film, Bob Rogers, who was an, uh, an Imagineer back then, uh, a guy named Michael Lloyd, who um, is a mad artist, I think he still is, um, who was uh, trained under Peter Ellenshaw and did a lot of the matte paintings for the Star Trek and Star, I think he did some for Star Wars, but I know he did some of the Star Trek matte paintings. He was on the team and, um, oh gosh, Skip eventually Pine. Steve, Skip eventually, I'm trying to think initially, and again, when I go through these old memos, I'll, I'll know. But yeah, eventually Skip uh, would be brought on board. Um, Steve Kirk and Tad Stones. In fact, a lot of folks came over from, were on loan from feature animation from the studio. So that would be Tad Stones and Andy Gaskell, importantly. Um, he He's really responsible for the look and style, I would say, for most of the scenes in Journey into Imagination. He, he did the, I would say he kind of did visually, he didn't lay them out on plan, but he did renderings that suggested how the scenes would be laid out. And they're beautiful, gorgeous. Uh, maybe only one or two of them have been published and someday I'm sure we'll see more. Uh, you may have seen, I think online ended up um, his pencil sketch that indicated Spider-Man, I believe, and you know a Marvel aspect or a Marvel moment in the uh, literature scene. Uh, he is still is an amazingly talented person, and he was a production designer on a lot of the feature films during the second golden age um, at Disney. You know, that would include uh, Lion King and uh, Beauty and the Beast and those kinds of films. And so um, 
he he was an enormous talent. He hadn't done those yet. He they were all you know I think happy to come over to Imagineering at the time because they were working on Fox and the Hound and uh, were not really thrilled about that. So um, let's see. Yeah, that was kind of the core team. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone important. Uh, and immediately it seemed or fairly quickly in the timeline, it seemed to coalesce into a four part journey that would include a ride through attraction, a uh, hands on area. We were all inspired by the Exploratorium in San Francisco, which still exists. It recently moved. Um, but we all had visited that at some point. And so it was kind of like, what is a Disney version of the Exploratorium? And that would become, of course, Imageworks. And then the 3D film, um, that was from the prompting coming from Kodak, because we weren't necessarily, I remember there was kind of some like 3D movies. Didn't those go out, you know, of style in the 50s? But there had been a recent, I think, 3D film done. It may have been the one, it may have been done by Murray Lerner. Um, gosh, I need to do my homework. It may have been a seas oriented film for a museum or sea park or something. And so Kodak was excited about it. And the, the film guys that were on the team, like Bob Rogers and Rick Harper, were excited about it. So I think that um, initiated the discussions about a 3D film. And then the fourth element was an Imagination Gardens of which a piece of it ended up, you know, being built with the leapfrog fountains. And there were some, I think a pop jet fountain with figment, a figment topiary, and then the upside down waterfall. And then that weird play structure that ended up on top of that. <laughs> Those were kind of the remnants of the, um, of what was going to be called imagination gardens. Which was going to be sort of this outdoor sort of walking park, correct? Like a, yeah. green, a green space. Yeah. I think the idea was that, Initially, the original idea was that the attraction would unload on the second level into the image works from which you would naturally spill down um, out of the building into the gardens area. And then the 3D movie was kind of one of the was the anchor, I guess you could say, for the garden area. And that all went away, you know, several months later when there was a uh, come to reality you know, meeting um, to get the budget down because it had, you know, spiraled out of budget, probably mostly due to me. Um. <laughs> it's funny you say you use the word spiral because am, am I correct that there was actually going to be, and we'll talk about the turntable, but there was going to be sort of a, a second yes. turntable that was going to bring you up. Yes. So, so the attraction was really going to be two levels itself. Yes. Well, yeah, the second level was only the second turntable, I believe. Um, so you'd go up out of... Um, out of the last scene of the attraction upstairs to the second turntable. And I think I worked out a plan when the two turntables were actually stacked on top of each other, but that was turned out to not be a good idea for ride control uh, reasons. So, um, so then they were separated and that's the, probably the point where it got very expensive. And so now you had two separate turntables and kind of a, you know, a deadhead area that would go from upstairs back down, you know, it just, it added cost. Um, although it would have been a lovely way to end the attraction. Uh, so, but the, you know, the, the biggest loss, I guess, um, 
and gosh, you know, if I could go back in time and, and if there was, you know, the thing is we are running out of time. So there wasn't too much time to explore a lot of alternatives, but what would have been nice would have been to still unload upstairs. And I mean, that was kind of a lesson we all knew, you know, just innately that you're going to have a hard time getting people to go upstairs unless it's so obvious that you must go up there because there's something so shiny and sparkling. And it was difficult to, to um, arrange that, to get that, to get there in the time that we had. So we just unloaded them on the lower level. And uh, initially we had a turntable load, you know, kind of like a giant version of the um, people mover, the wedway people mover loading. So it'd be a giant, you know, a much larger, diameter turntable to load the vehicles. But uh, then at that point, they were looking at these independently um, moving vehicles, not on a, not chained together like an Omnimover, but more like a people mover um, with variable speed and with motors on the, you know, along the track so that it could slow down to a, a, a slow uh, pace that you can easily bore, you know, easily load and unload without the need for um, a speed ramp or a turntable and then speed up as it goes into the ride and then slow down as it hits the turntable and then, you know, moves at a steady speed through the turntable. And then it was supposed to kind of pick up speed in a couple points, which it did, but not as much as we would have liked, you know, we wanted some real thrill elements where it would actually kind of like be a free fall moment. Um, but it didn't quite work out that way. You know, basically it was a reinvention of the people mover. And it was something that was, I think on the agenda of the ride uh, engineers, you know, that, that they wanted to um, take that to the next level. Uh, and it would eventually introduce some complications to the, um, to the schedule mostly. I mean, it was a very doable thing, but it, it required a lot of test and adjust. And that's why the, attraction portion uh opened a little bit later than the rest of the pavilion so it was really more of time than technology that that oh, yeah. that from wow yeah because imagine you know some of the other pavilions had already been in concept two years prior you know energy and transportation and land had all gone through their concept phases in 1976 77 78 and here we were we had to come up with something right away um for kodak and there was a staffing issue too, a little bit because there was no, there were no architects to work on it. And so I was the de facto architect. Um, you know, I was really just supposed to kind of lay it out in general, but I ended up doing kind of the, the geometry on the, on the main building, on the ride building and on the crystals, um, just so that we can get a model made, you know, so that we, that we could hand something over to the model builders and, um, you know, that was buildable, that was, you know, based in reality and scale. So that's what I was doing, I think, during the summer of um, 79 was laying out the attraction, laying out the overall uh, pavilion. We never really got too far into the gardens. I think we just did a, a basic concept of it. Um, someone else took over for the theater because that was a special kind of requirement. I'm sure we had someone from the studio um, working that out because it involved 
projection and, you know, screens and angles and lenses and all those things that I know nothing about. Uh, Murray Lerner was brought on board, the Academy Award-winning director, and he really um, grabbed a hold of the 3D film. And of course, at some point, probably in the late summer or fall of 79, uh, the Sherman brothers were brought on board to write the music, the songs. And then um, we had a great arranger, composer named George Wilkins, who's still around. And he did such a fantastic job of taking that music, you know, to an even higher level, the way that Erwin Kostel did for Mary Poppins. You know, it's just like, it's so... Um, irresistible to listen to that you just want to listen to it over and over. All, I'm going to talk about all the different yeah. little pieces for it, the area background music, the um, waiting area music for the film and making memories film and all of that. Uh, they did such a great job for that. Years ago, uh, I used to tell people when the attraction, when the initial attraction closed, there was great background music that for a time, you could only hear in the restrooms. I'm like, you need right. to go to the restrooms yeah. and hear how good this music is. I think someone said it's still playing in the restrooms. It probably is. Yeah. Um, so that was all, you know, a lot of fun. And I, you know, I, I attended all of the story and brainstorm sessions. I contributed a lot of kind of, you know, dorky pencil sketches, which I'd love to find someday. But, you know, I, I thought I submitted them. Um, but they don't show up, you know, they haven't shown up basically about what the pavilion might look like on the outside and some ideas for the, um, dream port. Cause the dream port was kind of a, you know, the, the scene right after the turntable scene, um, was an important element. And I just found out that the bulk of that scene, cause I didn't, you know, I, I refined some of the elements on it through my, um, show set drawings, but the, but it was basically designed via model. And I always wondered, you know, was it John Stone or was it Andy Gaskell? Um, but there's nothing in Andy's sketches that indicate that steampunky, you know, Captain Nemo-y kind of look. And I think I just discovered that that scene was designed by Tom Sherman, which makes complete sense. <laughs> Mr. Captain Nemo himself. Yeah. And as you know, as you're going through and, and mentioning a lot of these names, I think some of which are very familiar, some maybe are not. It's amazing that Tony is assembling, you know, this this Avenger-like yeah. team of Imagineers. Yeah. I mean, it's you and Barry and and Steve Kirk. Um, I remember I had Steve. Yeah. I interviewed Steve. One of my very first, I think, was back on show thirty in two thousand seven, like fifteen years ago. Yeah. Who? And again, correct me. Didn't he do the original sort of physical designs for Figment and Dreamfinder, and then Ex Atencio sort of finalized? Yeah, I think so. And there were steps in between because Andy Gaskell did what I consider to be the the best version of the two. Um, although, you know, Figment was a little more reptilian, I guess, in Andy's version, but I loved his Dream Finder. But I think it goes back all the way before I started at Imagineering. I think the idea for those two characters goes back to, um, I think it goes back to Discovery Bay. Mm -hmm. Which Steve Kirk and Tony were working on, right, and there the was derivation uh, of like the Professor Marvel yes. character. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Steve came up with um, came up with that, and also the idea. I don't know if he came up with the idea, but he he did a model of the dream catching machine, 
which was handed over to me to deal with, along with the entire turntable. And which people forget, Tom, again, the attraction that we have now, not only is a shell of its former self and the, the original, but is much, much shorter. And I don't think people realize, I want you to talk a little bit about that turntable, not just in terms of the size of it and the engineering of it, but it was a very long piece of the attraction, right? Wasn't it like yeah. three, three plus minutes? Yeah, three, three and a half, I think. Um, I called it quality time. That's the time where you're <laughs> focused on it and important content is being delivered. And that was, it was funny. I ended up doing an exposure sheet for it, like they do in animation. And I th think I got the idea from the Art of Animation book, you know, Bob Thomas's book, where there's a little, uh, several pages that explain the exposure sheet uh, process. And so I created a round turning exposure sheet with little tick marks on it. And each tick mark represented one second of time. And that way, um, we could tell exactly what's happening um, with the vehicles as they're entering, what they're seeing, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that needed to be done in order to isolate one scene from the other so that you're not hearing the adjacent scene or seeing the adjacent scene. And, um, and also ensuring that, your, that everyone's sight lines would be good, you know, that there wouldn't be a, uh, an extreme angle in the front or at the end where you've got like a, you know, a not very good view into there. It is very challenging, you know, cause you're dealing with pie wedges and how many sections can it be divided into? Is it three, four, five? And it ended up being five being the magic number and the arrangement of vehicles being four very tightly squeezed together. And then we discovered, you know, if you, if you shaped the vehicle and plan more like an egg or a teardrop, you could get an extra seat in it with the same spacing between vehicles. And that spacing between vehicles is important as it slows down and comes into unload and load. That, that will determine the dispatch interval. It was funny because um, no one else in, in the department, in the set design department, understood any of that kind of metric. And that all came, a lot of that was baked into my head from being a ride operator at Disneyland and knowing about, um, about dispatch intervals and vehicle speeds and safety speed and all of that. And so I, I kind of came with that knowledge. I had never done a ride layout before. I had admired the ride layouts uh, that Claude Coates and Bill Martin had done um, for Disneyland, but I, I had not personally done a ride layout before. <laughs> And so, you know, when I sat down to do it, I'm kind of like, am I qualified for this? But um, I guess I was. It, it was actually kind of easy. You know, once you have all the, once you have developed the toolkit, which is the turning radiuses and the speeds and all of that, um, it, it's, you know, it was fairly easy to do. Well, I, I think <laughs> you said it's but I, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, I think people forget just how unique those vehicles are. And when, now when you start to think about it, and then that teardrop shape is brilliant in design because not only do you, do you get another person, but you're really able to sort of manage the sight lines. Or you're really able to direct right. what and how people see in that car. Right, and they were, they were um, 
tiered. I don't know if it was the first vehicle that we had done where the back seat's higher than the front seat. I don't know if the Caterpillar is an Alice. I, I have to, I can't remember, but it might've been the first, first ride vehicle where we were, where the back seats were up higher than the lower seats. And also the, the odd number allowed you to look between heads when you were in, that was more important on the second and third car than it was on the first and fourth car. But, um, you know, if you got those cherry seats, then you didn't have a head directly in front of you. So um, those were some innovations that I think we had worked on. And, you know, the, the idea of an odd number of people it was not met initially, um, you know, uh, it wasn't welcomed immediately by the operations folks because they were so used to, you know, four people, six people, eight people. But when I sat down and, and demonstrated and showed them how, you know, th this is as tight as you can get vehicles smushed together and, um, and have them slow down in the area. It's, it's all, everything is so interrelated, but it goes back to the speed that you're loading um, people at in the load area in order to hit the dispatch interval to hit the target. THRC. Um, so I, I showed them, look, you can get an extra person, you know, in there in the same, on the same center point. I think it was David Todd, uh, who might've been the representative because he was the PICO uh, coordinator for this attraction. And they, you know, end up doing everything, basically. <laughs> they end up doing a lot of our jobs for us, uh, particularly the project manager's job. And, um, but they, they come from an operations background and they were all selected by Dick Nunes um, to, for their particular roles. So uh, it was a good working relationship, I think, between me and David Todd, because uh, we both understood kind of the operational and metric um, aspect of everything. And it sounds like you, whether you volunteered to or not, you, you wore a lot of hats Right. All of a sudden you're the architect and you're, yeah. you're designing all these different things. But I think one of the reasons why the the original incarnation of imagination was so special, so revered, so beloved, so missed was because it truly was a multisensory attraction. Right. It hit oh, yeah. all five senses, 360 right. degrees. You talked about not just the theme song, but the score and so, some of the other elements one of the other aspects I think that is is critical to it are the voice actors and your initial recommendation or request <laughs> for voice actors. I think would have been is it was brilliant. No, <laughs> it was brilliant. It was also expensive. Uh, talk yeah. a little bit about who you recommended, why, and how that didn't happen. Because when we talk about the voice of Dreamfinder, there's sort of voices, right? There's sort of multiple voices before we get to. Um, before we get to, to Chuck yeah. and, and Ron and, and Billy Barty. Right. Well, I think they were well into the voice selection process in general, and they had selected Dreamfinder, but they were having a problem identifying a figment. And so I just remember John Biner, you know, he was a funny comedian actor that was on some sitcoms and on variety shows, and he could do a helium voice without inhaling helium. And uh, little did I know at the time he was also voicing Gurgi from the Black Cauldron. So he was already kind of on the Disney voice, you know, voiceover docket. And um, but no one had heard. It was funny that 
no one on the team had heard of him. And like, don't you watch Get Smart? Because <laughs> he would, you know, occasionally show up on that and other shows. And he came in. I thought he did a good job. I sat, I was the guy who had to bring him in, walk him over to the recording studio and work with the sound engineers. And, um, you know, someone didn't like it, I guess. So then I suggested, or maybe it was before, I can't remember if it was before or after, but I said the first, I mean, the great idea would be to get Robin Williams, who was Mork on Mork and Mindy, because he was just so crazy. And, um, and, and, you know, he, uh, he was just, you know, a loose cannon, but funny, and he could do all sorts of funny little voices. And they said, are you out of your mind? He would charge $10,000. Um, and the, and the max, and, and at some point, I think it was Randy Bright told me, he said, we have a Mac, a maximum of a thousand dollars that we'll pay for a voice session. And that's why you don't hear Paul freeze anymore because he wants more than that. Right. Cause you wanted Paul freeze to be Dreamfinder, right? Pro probably. I probably, yeah. I mean, that was kind of like the, you know, no brainer, um, first idea out of the gate but it was explained to me that paul wanted more than than the limit um so he was out as well and i also remember suggesting this was before george Wilkin, wilkins came on board maybe it was before even the sherman brothers came on board because you remember the sherman brothers had done nothing for several years for disney so you know you almost felt like a nerd suggesting the Sherman brothers. Cause it's like, Oh, that's, you know, that's old hat. We don't do the Sherman brothers anymore. Uh, thankfully, you know, um, we were able to get them, but I remember suggesting Danny Elfman and that was another like, what, who <laughs> I said, he, well, he had not done films at that point. He was just, he had Oingo Boingo, right, right. his rock band. And I had all of their albums and I think I played some of their albums and they went, what, you know? So <laughs> Oh my God. This is like the story of my career is suggesting right. things and people you know, basically what? saying, shut up. And then years later that the idea emerges. <laughs> well, and now people look back and like, gosh, how did we pass on a Paul freeze Robin Williams combination for, for Dreamfinder and, and figment, but even the, the original voice actor that Wed hired Chuck McCann, who I remembered, I'm going to show my age from far out space nuts with, uh, with Bob Denver. And he obviously had a, he had a very prolific career too. I remember he had also had a small part in Mel Brooks silent movie. Um, I'm a huge Mel Brooks fan, oh, yeah. but yeah. Um, you know, he, he, he creates this voice. He sort of bases it on uh, Frank Morgan's performance in, in wizard of Oz. Yeah. But at some point, and it it doesn't. I I've never been able to sort of get the real answer about what happens to Chuck McCann and why he ends up leaving to be replaced with a sound alike voice actor who who I love and I've known for years, Ron Schneider. Yeah, I don't know too much about that. At some point, you know, I I really it was none of my business to be involved in the um, in the voice casting and in the music. Uh, I think I just, you know, raised my hand about uh, John Biner and Robin Williams and Annie Elfman. <laughs> and after three strikes, I shut up. <laughs> uh, so I didn't I wasn't really involved um, in all the other casting for that. So I don't know. I don't know how how that went about. 
So maybe something you can answer, and, and forgive me if you've answered it on social, right? You're, you're, you're wonderfully communicative and responsive on social. And for years, uh, especially early on, those who remember the original iteration of the attraction being so much longer and even sort of where the load area is now is very different than where the load area was. And liter- there were rumors that elements of the turntable were still there to sort of boarded up behind some some plywood and murals somewhere. Do you know how, you know, what is sort of left from there? And, and because obviously I, I don't, I would love to. Maybe coming in the yeah. future, so. I would love to know. And I've heard, you know, both um, that elements of it are still there and, and not. Um, if there's elements still there, it's probably the lower uh, area below, below, below the loading level. Cause that the turntable itself was about sunk about um, the mechanism that turned everything was sunk about six feet, as I recall, below the load level. So that's where the actual turning table was. Cause you had to have some depth down below, you know, sightline wise um, to believe that this flying aircraft was, you know, actually flying in the air. And there was a bunch of equipment down there on the floor. There was a fog puffer machine and, um, and a CO2 tank and a whole bunch of things down below. So that's what actually turned. And then there were the five columns that held part of the um, upper attic area to the turntable. And so those columns, I'm sure the five columns are, I'm sure are, were, you know, welded out. Um, but what might still be there, I don't know. I almost got a chance to go prowling around, but um, it didn't happen. But uh, the, you know, the actual turntable itself might still be down there, down below. And there'd be no reason, there'd be no reason necessarily to, you know, it, it may have been too expensive to, you know, take it all out. Just to build over, yeah. yeah. Right, um, and I know we were just talking before. You have a, a an inordinate, countless amount of photos and slides and Polaroids that hopefully you'll be able to get scanned in because I'm I'm sure along the way that you were were documented. We're scanned actually, but I, you know, someone has been several people have been bugging me to do a book about journey into imagination, <laughs> uh, which is not at the top of my do list, but it sure makes sense. And I'd sure like to work on it with someone. So I've held back. Um, you've only seen maybe 5% of the photos that I that took sound inside. That you're not hearing right now is the sound of people screaming at their cars to write <laughs> that book and share those photos. Well, because, I mean, look, all these years later, the love and and I think the handwriting is on the wall in terms of what we see in Epcot and the resurgence of Figment popcorn bucket. I'm yeah. looking at you. There, there is there is a future for this pavilion. I, I think the handwriting's been on the wall for years, especially based on the state of the post show area and the lack of love and attention that has been given. So, right. Tom K. Morris, I want to challenge you have fun with with you if you were put in charge of the reimagination of the imagination project i'm going i'll give you a little bit more than a thousand dollars i'll give you unlimited budget <laughs> what do you do because i have to imagine there's times that you've laid in bed hammock in your car going man if, if i could do it this is the way i would do the imagination pavilion well i'd, I'd return a lot of the elements um 
you know, from the original show, like the turntable and the dream catching machine and most of the scenes, I think, but I wouldn't do it all exactly the same way. Um, but I, it would be a similar experience. I think the relationship between Dreamfinder and Figment um, could be even more, it could be strengthened um, and, and Dreamfinder carved into an even more appealing uh, character along the lines of what the Marvel guys did for that comic strip, which I think was, a you know, it was more of a, a younger and, um, and you got a better idea of the origin story and why and why the relationship, why the yin and yang kind of relationship existed between Figment and Dreamfinder. Because it's not that Dreamfinder is smart, you know, and intelligent and educated, and therefore he's not fun. And Figment is fun, but he's not responsible or capable of, you know, intelligent, uh, you know, it, it was too separated. Um, well, it is now. It, it, it was less so in the original, but I think it could be even more, the message can be made even stronger that um, you can be any combination of artistic, creative, scientific, calculating. You could be left brain and right brain. Um, you know, that it's not, you don't go through the whole world saying I'm right brained and therefore I don't know how to do math or I'm left brained. So I'm not creative. And, um, so I think that message is an important one to, to bake into the, uh, bake into the story. Um, and, you know, certainly, uh, update, you know, the performing arts scene, you know, that laser, thing that ended up there was, I think it was some of the first um, laser animation ever done or digital animation or digital laser animation it was done by Mike Sedino um, at, at the studio. And it, it was kind of what we ended up with with the time once again. And it was supposed to be you know more spectacular than that. It would be so easy to do today. But then we were dealing with something that had never been done before. So I think that seen performing arts would certainly need some updating the um art scene the you know the all the white leaves and white you know the arts i called it an artscape and uh, the, the scene that was designed by walt paragoy and again we didn't quite have the technology to to bring that about the way that we would have wanted to which was it was supposed to you were supposed to go in and it was all white and then all of a sudden it was going to be saturated with color and um, that wasn't, it's amazing to think that that wasn't possible back then, but it wasn't. <laughs> right, and look, at, look at what they're doing, you know, like on the Disney Dream now and exactly. on palette, sort of being able to make that conversion. And there's so many ways to do it now, um, but there weren't then, you know, it's the problem of when you throw too much colored light onto a scene, it turns white itself. You know, that it's the basic principle of lighting when you combine all the colors into one area it turns white. And so, um, so that scene I think could be, you know, even more spectacular today And the science scene, you know, as well, I think all, you know, certainly the end uh, when uh, that was the first like photo capture that had ever been yeah. done um, or first video capture that had been done. And it was so in its infancy back then. And it was also a little unreliable you know, so sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. A lot of times you got the wrong people in the car, you know, that were either before you or behind you <laughs> and it was grainy 
And uh, that could be, you know, done so well uh, today. So, you know, I think it's a matter of just improving each of the scenes, strengthening the takeaway message. And, and then I would spend the money to, to take the cars upstairs and deliver you back into the image works. Yeah, as much as I know, people love the the DVC lounge up there. Um, <laughs> the image works for me as a kid who was a a techie nerdy kid was one of my favorite overall parts of Epcot. And whether oh, yeah. it's a simple rainbow tunnel or the pin table or the yeah. the, the school of animation and the conducting with the, all those things were just mind blowing to me. Yeah, um, you know Barry Braverman and Skip Lang were really the guys that pulled that together along with the special effects team who were inventing things, you know, um, like the bubble. I mean, everything was, was invented. Um, you know, they were kind of the seed of them came from somewhere else, but then they were taken to a, another level. Some of the stuff we had seen at the Exploratorium, like the pin screens, the pin tables, but they were, it was a small kind of a thing. I, as I recall, it was just like one small, little table so we we uh, made that bigger the kaleidoscopes i think were just a, a brand new idea um the magic palette was the you know i'd like to know a little bit more about the magic palette and how that came about because you know i didn't know it at the time but that was the precursor to photoshop and adobe and all that um and it had its problems it shared problems initially with that wand and also people didn't understand how to use it. So that was my second job on imagination was after it opened on October 1st, we immediately saw what was working and what was not working. Um, and so, you know, there were a lot of instructional issues. People didn't intuitively know what to do at the electronic Philharmonic or the magic palette, a couple other things. And so I developed a graphic package also directionally how to get out and also to reinforce the, the notion that there's still more with a Magic Eye Theater. And um, so I worked a couple months on a graphic, on doing the um, preliminary graphics and then sending those preliminaries after they were approved by operations and by Tony, sending them over to the graphics department back in Glendale um, and then quickly installing them. So that was that was a punch list thing that I was doing between the time that the park and the general pavilion opened, but the ride was still down. Um, and so we were still, you know, working on the attraction. Most of the attraction by that time, I think, had been installed, but then there was a lot of programming and, and punch list things that needed to be done. But we were waiting for the ride um, system to become fully reliable. And that had been delayed because Spaceship Earth was having some issues. So all the team that was working on the ride vehicles and ride control for Imagination were all working on Spaceship Earth and trying to get that um, reliable because it was, you know, they were having problems for the first several months, I guess. And uh, so a lot, you know, there was a lot going on. And, um, but that image works you know, was great. And, and some of that, as I said, came from the Exploratorium and some of it was completely invented by um, the team. Barry, you know, Barry pretty much um, took the bull by the horns up there in the image works. And there was a company 
as I recall, in Maryland that actually fabricated all of those um, units. You know, the the neon tunnel, which was a huge you know issue. Uh, it, it seems simple, right? It, it's just money, but it's not inventing anything. But it was because um, there were two things. So the color was supposed to follow you, and it did as long as one person at a time went through there. And that was really neat. But the other problem had to do with stuff that I don't understand, transformers and proximity and interference and frequency and all this stuff that was uh, causing the transformers to, you know, not blow up, but not perform. So that was a huge thing, I remember. But it was there. We got it on opening day. And I think, um, you know, maybe... Maybe some uh, issues for the first couple few weeks on it, but then it was more about the operation of it. You know that they didn't want to post an operator, and they shouldn't. You know, um, and that was one of the signs I had to develop. That's you know explained while you're waiting in line. You wait one person at a time. You know, wait a few seconds, and then go. Well, not everyone reads, nor should they. You know, uh, you don't want sign pollution. That was kind of the the thing I was mindful of, it's like, okay, we need a lot of signs. So now, you know, let's be careful that there, that this doesn't become sign land and make sure that figment or dream finder is on all of the, all of these instructionals. The one, the hardest one to do because then it had to be incorporated into the screen. It, it was like a little um, tutorial, I guess that would come on um, to tell you how to do to how to work the um, magic palette, because that was just people were completely lost and people would go up to it. They get frustrated after 20 seconds. And so um, when I was explaining this, maybe it was to Joe Garlington or someone who might have been involved with its development. And I was telling them about coming up with the, the tutorial for it. They said, well, so you came up with the first um tutorial <laughs> you know photoshop or uh you know computer graphic tutorial i'm like i have so little to you know to, to do with that whole world i'm still struggling with photoshop although um i you know i have other kind of ways around it um and i'm not afraid of digital or anything but it's like back then i didn't know that was all just voodoo and um so that was kind of funny um so that was about three or four months worth of um, fine tuning, punch listing, graphic uh, observation also just like what, what is, you know, I would just stand up there and see and listen to what people were saying at each of the activities. And also, you know, I noticed near the escalator, they like, where do we go now? You know, I don't know. We're, what are we supposed to do? And so that, and that, um, developed into the there's a marquee that that says how many minutes left for the magic eye theater show to begin and a directional that kind of you know um seduces you to come over and go down the escalator because people couldn't find the escalator and i don't blame them i mean you know and it, it it was again the time involved there was really no time to do another generation of layout for the pavilion, everyone did a good job with you know what they had, and um, and the, eventually the architect uh, Domance Grants, he was a very very talented architect, 
who had designed some of the uh, Bullock's department stores, particularly one that I grew up with in, in um, Orange County at South Coast Plaza that was pyramid shaped, a pyramid shaped Bullock's, um, or you know, it had uh, banked walls around it. So he had kind of come pre-programmed knowing about angled buildings. And so he did the final, um, you know, the final design on the pavilion and on the two crystals. And the idea for those two crystals um, came from, or the design for those two, two crystals came from uh, Dan Gouzet, one of the, he, he was also on the initial project and he was a renderer, um, a really good sketch artist, quick sketch artist and, and renderer. He had done some of the James Bond and Star Wars posters, movie posters. Um, and we had started talking about some kind of crystal um, to be the to be the architecture for the Imagination Pavilion. And I remember submitting one that was kind of like a, a diamond set, you know, with a setting around it. But Dan came up with the two pyramids that, with a truncated top. And it was, you know, several years later that I learned that it was based on silver halide, silver halide crystals, yeah. which are the uh, key ingredient to Kodak film. <laughs> silver halide. Yeah. Um, and so he did, he did that first sketch for it. And then he did that beautiful rendering. And then I took that and did the preliminary architecture for, for those crystals and for the pavilion. And then from there, Domance Grants did the final um, architecture. He's the architect on record. And I think one of the, the most continuously intriguing things about the pavilion was exactly what we were talking about, was the image works upstairs was, I think, the first, and maybe even still to this day, the best example of... That concludes part one of my conversation with former Imagineer Tom Morris. Next week, we're going to pick up our conversation, not just about Journey into Imagination's past, present, possibly even future, but Tom's other work and amazing contributions to Cars Land, Disneyland Paris, Tomorrowland and Disneyland, Hong Kong Disneyland, and other attractions before Tom gives some very sage and practical and tactical advice to anyone thinking about maybe becoming an Imagineer. And then we discuss the potential future of the Disney Parks experience. In the meantime, you can talk about this week's interview and any questions you might have over in the WW Radio Clubhouse. That is our group over on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. And of course, please be sure to tune in next week for part two. time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details in what you see, hear, remember, maybe even taste. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is once again brought to you by you. And what I mean is that by becoming a member of the WW Radio Nation, you literally help bring every episode of WW Radio to life Every live broadcast from the parks, the contests, giveaways, they are all thanks to, by, for, and with you. You can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar per month 
and get exclusive rewards every month like scavenger hunts and trivia quests. We have group video calls. You have access to our private Facebook group, shirts, stickers, monthly care packages from the parks, and much more. You can learn more and become a member at www.radio.com support. Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, we made our way to Toy Story Land at Disney's Hollywood Studio, where you are literally shrunk down to the size of a toy and you're playing in Andy's backyard, where not just you and the toys play, but so does Andy's dog. And your question last week was to tell me, what is the name of Andy's dog? First, thanks to all of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew that Andy's dog is named Buster. And yes, you can find it, if you know where to look, inside Toy Story Land. So if you head on to Slinky Dog Dash, if you look at the standby time sign, it's actually made from a dog tag. And as you pass it, and if you turn around and look up, you'll see that Andy's dog is named Buster, and he lives at 234 Elm Street. I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were playing for a WW Radio pin, keychain, and a bonus mystery prize. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Michael Mazzaferro. So, Michael, congratulations. You use the online form. I have your mailing address, and we'll get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So this week, I'm going to test your memory a little bit because I want you to tell me what Walt Disney World attraction was once located in two different Walt Disney World parks. The same attraction was located in one park, was literally picked up and moved to another. What attraction was located what different times in two different Walt Disney World parks? You have until Sunday, January 30th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern, to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the form there, and once again, you're going to play for the pin, the keychain, and a mystery prize. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Please don't forget to be part of the community and conversation by discussing this week's show or anything in the Disney, Marvel, or Star Wars universe over in the WW Radio Clubhouse on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. You can also connect with me online. I am at Lou Mangiello on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Also, be sure to like the WW Radio page on Facebook and turn on notifications so you don't miss a thing, including our Wednesday night live show at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. I'll often take you with me live from the parks or from the home studio where we talk about this week's show, what's new and news in Walt Disney World, my top five live, Disney Plus Pick of the Week, 20 questions. You can call in and ask a question and much more again every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming episode, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com. Or if you want to call the voicemail be heard on the air, you can leave a voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Huge thanks to everyone who is a member of the WW Radio Nation family. I sincerely appreciate your help and your friendship and your support of the show. I love being able to give back to you each and every month our monthly calls, and all the other things that we get to do together. I want to thank some new and longtime members of the Nation family, including Elizabeth Griffiths, Philip Cresta, Tony Irvin, and Andrew Prince. To find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar a month, visit www.radio.com support. 
Also, be sure to check out our events page at www.radio.com or on our Facebook page to find out about upcoming events, including Meets of the Month, group events like our group cruises. Our Marvel Day at Sea is coming up February 5th. Stay tuned. I'm going to try and go live from the cruise if and when I can. We have an inaugural cruise on the Disney Wish June 20th. Have a little bit of availability left for that. A very merry time cruise on December 5th, also on the Disney Wish. In April of next year, an eight-night Disney fantasy cruise to Bermudas and overnight in the Bahamas. Again, find out more by visiting the events page at www.radio.com. Don't forget to visit my official and recommended travel provider who is mousefantravel.com. Whether you're coming to World, Land, Cruise, Alani, or anywhere on the planet, Becky and her team of agents can help you not only make the right decisions and take advantage of the best possible prices and all available discounts, but more importantly, they give you an incredible level of personal service, which is their hallmark. Again, visit them over at mousefantravel.com. And finally, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. How can you do that? Share a link to this or your favorite episode on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Tag me at Lou Mangiello. And if you haven't done so already, if you can, take just a couple of seconds to please rate and review the show over an Apple podcast or leave a rating over in Spotify podcast. Either is incredibly helpful. I want to thank some recent reviewers over on Apple podcast like Dylan Kona, who says, WW Radio is one of the best podcasts out there. I love listening to the show. Lou and his friends and guests are always entertaining and informative about everything from the parks to the streams and everything in between. Thank you to the WW Radio Show crew for always bringing your best to every episode it really shows. Dylan, thank you so very much for listening and taking the time to leave a review. And I hope that you enjoyed this week's conversation with Tom Morris. Please also don't forget to go check out the blog over at www.radio.com. Come be part of the community and the conversation over in the clubhouse. Join me and other members of the WW Radio family this and every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. And I hope that this truly is your best week ever. I hope that you choose the good and find the good in everyone and everything that you encounter. Because if you spread positivity, I promise you that positivity will spread. Thank you for the gift of your friendship and your time. I appreciate it and you more than you know. If there's anything I can do for you, please reach out, let me know, or visit loumangelo.com. Find out how maybe I can help you. So until next time, I love you. I appreciate you. See ya. Hi, Lou. This is Jeff in New York City. I'm a longtime listener and a Patreon member. I uh, was just listening to the listener email episode and wanted to call in to share that I totally agree with Becky that the uh, Shanghai version of Pirates of the Caribbean uh, Search for the Chunk Sunken Treasure is absolutely my favorite attraction in all of the Disney parks. I've been really blessed to be able to visit every Disney park around the world, and that attraction absolutely, hands down, takes the prize for best attraction. I hope to be back in Shanghai at some point in the future to be able to see it again. I know they're building this Utopia land, and it would be great to be able to see it, but honestly, that attraction alone is enough to make me want to travel back there. Hope you're having a great day, and look forward to listening again soon. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flower Town, Pennsylvania. I just listened to your guys' uh, second part of the recap of 2021, and I'm going to, you know, give my two cents. Um, my favorite Marvel 
Disney Plus was Loki. Uh, then my second was WandaVision. And then my third was Hawkeye. And Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And then What If? So that's my order of things. Um, my favorite parts of 2021, there's so many of them. Um, I got to meet my niece for the first time in Disney World. Why not? Of course. I videoed my brother seeing the Millennium Falcon for the first time, and he bawled his eyes out. I will never erase that video for as long as I live. I got to go to Momentum, which was incredible. And let's see, what else? Um... That's about it. But I'm looking forward to next year, this year, 2022, uh, the Marvel Day at Sea cruise, my first cruise ever. We are, gosh, just about two weeks away from that. Woohoo! And I'm taking my kids to Disney World at the end of the year. We're going to spend New Year's Eve in Disney World for the first time. So, anyway, that's that. Everybody make somebody smile. I don't want to go too long. I did last time. Love you guys. See you on Wednesday night. Bye-bye. Like dagger, blood, and gory, and then a mystery.